0: What is it about the Norse myths that so inspires Neil Gaiman? He'll tell us. His new book is Norse Mythology.
1: You don't get the feeling that these are unknowable, benign beings in the sky. You get the feeling with the gods that these are not even necessarily people you'd want to hang around with, but they would make your life more interesting.
0: What's the first post-Brexit novel? It may well be Ali Smith's Autumn. Our critic, Sarah Lyle, will be here to discuss. She sort of looks at time like Picasso might
2: look at a landscape or a a person or an object from all sides at once, which is
0: also very reassuring. It's a very warm and reassuring book. Why is it so hard to write a book about Silicon Valley culture? Nick Bilton will be here to talk about two new books that try, Valley of the Gods and The Kingdom of Happiness.
3: When you kind of take a step back and you read this, you're like, well, these people sound like they're part of a cult. Are they wearing the same Nikes and black hoodies and black jeans? And it gives you a perspective, though, that it's kind of a bizarre, bizarre place.
0: Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and other people are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Neil Gaiman is here. His new book is Norse Mythology. Neil, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: What inspired you to write about the Norse myths?
1: Well, the, the initial inspiration was actually eight years ago having lunch with Amy Cherry from Norton, mm-hmm. uh, the publisher. And she said, I love the way that you've been dealing with mythology in your fiction over the years. Have you ever thought about just writing, doing your retellings mm-hmm. of, of some of the the classic stories and the moment she said it I thought actually that would be amazing that that's kind of like being a rock group being invited to do the ultimate sort of covers album. right Um, right you're going this is where it all started but I'd loved Norse mythology ever since I was a kid we used to have um, reprints in England when I was growing up these black and white reprints of Marvel comics so I.
0: You didn't have the original Marvel comics like the, in their no, we had, format?
1: No, we had comics with names like Wham, Smash, Pow, Fantastic, and Terrific. And I think it was in Fantastic that they reprinted The Adventures of the Mighty Thor. But what was fun is they were reprinting them from the beginning. Uh huh. So I got to read all the Marvel comics from, you know, seven, seven years earlier than my age from the start. And I met Thor. My first encounter with Thor was, you know, mild-mannered Dr. Dom Blake trapped in a cave in Norway, finding a stick, banging it, and suddenly it turning into a hammer and him becoming Thor.
0: I think my first encounter with Thor was like through Dungeons and Dragons, like the gods and demigods manual, which I think is probably a lot less cool than your first encounter.
1: You know, what mine sent me to... I I immediately became fascinated. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know everything. So at the time, there was an English writer named Roger Lancelin Green, and he had done Myths of the Norsemen. And I had a friend who had a copy, so I grabbed it, read it, fell in love with it, got my own copy, read it until the pages fell out, also bought his, his Tales of Ancient Egypt I was going
0: to say, were you also into Egyptian mythology and Greek and Roman? He did
1: Tales of Troy. You know, Mm -hmm. I suddenly discovered, aged eight, that I was a mythology junkie. I hadn't known. uh,
0: I sort of feel like the Norse myths are like the, I don't know, not the lonely stepchild of like the mythology world, but they just, you know, in America at least— have traditionally not gotten as much attention. Now they're getting a little bit more because Rick Riordan is on the case, you know, with kids' books now, and and the movies have started. But why do you think they are not as well known? I think
1: part of it is just the uh, the sort of the river of classics that takes us to here mm-hmm. um, flows straight from from Greece and Rome, so the people who were considered great writers had all grown up with a, quote-unquote, classical education. And the classical education did not include the prose edda of Snorri Sturluson and, and the poetic edda. And that's also very understandable because it's worth bearing in mind that we have lots and lots of Greek and Roman myths and stories. They mm-hmm. were retold, uh, they were written down, we have a lot of them. We don't have a lot of, of the great Norse stories. Right. We have some. We have the ones that were preserved. It's probably more than a handful, but it's nowhere near enough. I, I, I grumble in my introduction about the fact that there are so many gods, and particularly goddesses, mm-hmm. who are named and given attributes, yet have no stories. And you go, they must have had stories. There must have been, you know, you must have been able to learn who they were. Here is the doctor of the gods. But she's never mentioned. Hmm. And you go, well, they would have had their own stories. But we have what remains to us, which is very little. It was written down after Christianization. So it wasn't even written from the time when people believed and people cared. It was even when they were preserved. They were being preserved as artifacts of the past.
0: I think that for children in America, it's been primarily the Döler's books of Norse mythology. What do you think makes the Norse, I mean, what makes the Norse myths especially interesting to you compared with those other traditions?
1: I love the gods, Mm -hmm. for a start. You don't get the feeling that these are unknowable benign beings in the sky with amazing huge magical powers you get the feeling with the gods that these are slightly doomed not always the smartest um they are not even necessarily people you'd want to hang around with but they would make your life more interesting and they do stupid things and they do wise things and they get tricked and they trick each other and everything is heading towards Ragnarok. And I think for me, the thing that makes the Norse mythology so fascinating and what I tried to get a feeling of in the book is the inevitability of doomsday.
0: What is doomsday in the Norse mythology? In
1: Norse mythology, Ragnarok, which is Armageddon, which is the end of everything. It's, um, it's a
0: very good word for it, it,
1: Ragnarok. It is. It's lovely. Is is. It's... First of all, you get this thimble winter, a dark winter that goes on for ages, almost like a nuclear winter. Brother against brother, family against family. Things go to hell. And then an army of essentially the evil dead turn up giants and zombies and and so forth, riding on a ship built of dead men's nails. The giant wolf and the serpent around the world a loose and ravening and causing destruction. And now the gods, who have been asleep, wake up and come down. And there is one long, horrible battle. And almost everybody is killed. Wait, I'm still stuck on the
0: dead people's nails. Like their fingernails and fingernails their toenails? Fingernails
1: and toenails. Yep, it's called Nugglefar. Wow. Um, it is the ship made of nails. <laughs> I don't
0: want to see the movie version of that particular it, uh
1: you are you are reminded. I, I I there's part of me that goes, you know, you keep being reminded that if you don't trim your nails, you are giving more nails to to the ship, and there's part of me that We're goes. We're contributing to doomsday. You are contributing to doomsday <laughs> by not trimming your nails. Yes.
0: Uh, but you have on the cover of the book Thor's. Hammer. Was this your choice? Did you want this to be what represents Norse mythology?
1: I wanted something iconic Mm -hmm. on the cover, in the same way that you could put Pegasus on the cover of a book of Greek mythology, and know that that's what you're seeing, because here is a winged horse, and that's what it represents.
0: What does it represent?
1: Um, The hammer is is very very iconic, and it one of the stories that I get to tell in the book, is the story of how Thor gets his hammer, which actually Loki, who is very uh, strange, he, he gets described as a god of mischief, but he's not really one of the gods of Asgard. He seems to be at least half frost giant. He's there to cause trouble, and he's also there to get them out of trouble. He, for reasons known only to himself in the book, I suggest that perhaps he was drunk, has cut off all of Thor's wife's hair and removed it so it will not even grow again. And now Thor threatens him, and he has to get hair. But he winds up, as, as part of his mad plan to get her hair, actually getting the dwarves to make glorious gifts for the gods. And one of the gifts is a hammer that will always return, be absolutely unlosable, change size, and defeat all manner of things, which becomes iconic and has been iconic for well over a thousand years, a symbol of the gods.
0: As you were talking, I the image of Loki from one of the recent superhero movies like popped into my head. And I wonder if for you, it was hard to kind of empty your head of all of these kind of pop culture references to North the Norse gods and Or if you even wanted to, like, did you you try to kind of make it your own in a way while you were writing this?
1: You know, I didn't need to empty my head, which is weird, I suppose, because for me, the the Loki and the Thor and the Odin and so forth of the Marvel comics and of the Marvel movies exist over here as Mm -hmm. one thing. And what I was trying to do was I would always begin each story by reading Snorri, by reading the version in the prose edda, if there wasn't a version in the prose edda, I would read it in the poetic edda. If there were two different versions, I would read both and decide what I wanted from each. There's one story in there, the story of of Gerd and Frey, where the god Frey falls in love and goes off and proposes to this this giantess Gerd, sends his messenger. And in one version of the story, it's rather threatening and unpleasant. And in the other, it's simply a courtship. Hmm. And I went, you know, I think I'm going to go for the less rapey version. Yes, why not? Um, this is my choice. <laughs> I, I have both here. And so used some bits from the other version, but then went for the easier version. Um, but I always went completely classical. Mm-hmm. And yes, all of the characters come to life in their own way once you write them. My Thor. Is absolutely consistent with the with Snorri's Thor, but he's speaking the way that I want him to talk. He's obviously not the brightest magic hammer in the <laughs> box, um, and but he is very much the Thor of of the Eddas, the Thor of Iceland, the Thor of Norse mythology.
0: It's interesting because with with myths like this and with. The Grimm's fairy tales, which Philip Pullman recently reinterpreted and wrote, there's certain constraints because the, the myths are what they are, but there's also a lot of open-endedness given that there are many versions.
1: I compare it sometimes to jazz, mm-hmm. but more actually to telling a joke because you you get told a joke or you read a joke and, and what you are given with a joke is the bare bones. A man walks into a bar And he looks across the room, and there is an elephant or whatever. And when you tell it, you make it yours. And you start explaining that, well, there was this uh, bloke who's been working really hard. He goes down into the bar. It's cool in there. He sits down. He takes off his hat and coat. He leans back, and he looks across the room. And there, sitting, having a drink in the bar opposite him, is the biggest elephant you've ever... And suddenly, you're in... It's right. a different kind of, of storytelling. So I was very happy to take the stories as the bones, as if, you were, as if you were given the bones of a joke, but always then wanting to play fair, always creating the dialogue, filling in scenes, but not actually inventing stuff. It's funny, I saw one review in the Wall Street Journal where mm-hmm. Tom Shippey, who's a very smart reviewer, had said... In the original story, Loki plays no part in the injury of Thor's goat in mm-hmm. one story. And I'm going, well, that is true in that version of the story. Yet there is another story where he curses Loki for the injury to his goat, which implies that Loki had something to do with it. So I always tried to play fair. Mm-hmm. I wasn't inventing out of whole cloth because that seemed like, you know, that would just be playing tennis without a net Whatever you have to play fair.
0: So in the Neil game and delivery of this Norse joke, um, did you have a guiding principle other than playing fair? Was there something that you wanted to infuse the collection?
1: I want to. I, I tried to keep the prose spare and, for me, redolent of of Snorri's work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something. Nice and hard-edged, and you feel that not a word is wasted. And I thought, okay, I want to do that. I don't ever want to sort of wrap people in beautiful words. I will, I will take the the poetry down, and leave the words here and clear and crystal and like like lumps of hard rock on the ground. Um, and I also wound up. Bec- I was writing them out of order. I, was mm-hmm. just, I would just, whenever I found I had a few days or a week, I would go and work on them, but I would write them out of order. But it was only when I got to the end and started putting them into order I realized that everything heads like, like a mandala uh, towards Ragnarok. It's all about this slow and inexorable movement from creation to destruction, and then what comes after. And I love the fact that there is, in Norse mythology, even though it's heading towards the darkest of the dark times, hope at the end, a little flash of light. There's a moment where the the surviving sons of the gods and two gods who have come back from the dead just sit in the garden and find these golden chess pieces of the gods abandoned. And I thought that, for me, is the, is the moment that I'm going for.
0: I was going to say, despite the impending doom, was it fun to write?
1: It was enormously fun. Writing Loki, writing Thor, writing Odin, who mm-hmm. is so smart and tricky and double-dealing and unreliable. Uh, writing gods that we have kind of forgotten, like Kvazir and Tyr. Writing the goddesses, you know, feeling like I was not... If I couldn't have lots of stories of the goddesses, at least I could play fair with the ones that I write about. So um, Idun, of, of, who carries the golden apples of immortality, uh, Freya, who, who is a goddess of, of beauty and of creation and of fertility, Scully, who, who is the daughter of a giant slain by the gods and who turns up in order to, to wreak her revenge. I've tried to play fair by all of them, and I, I loved writing them. as few rape uh, scenarios as possible. Yeah, there was a kind of a thing where you're going, okay, I'm writing this for now, mm-hmm. but I'm writing the stories of a bygone age. And when you're writing a book which you actually expect to be read by people of all ages— and you're going, okay, I really want to tell that story. I can't take out the story where Loki makes Scaldi laugh by tying a rope to the beard of a goat, one end of the, to the beard of a goat, and the other to um, his, his testicles. And Not funny. It's, but you're sort of going, okay, how do I make right. this, how do I tell this in a way that indicates that it would have been funny, and how do I do it in a way that I can get away with it in schools?
0: So much of this is about the delivery. So just in the last minute here, would you mind reading us a passage from the book?
1: The last gift Brock had to present was the one that Loki knew he had already managed to sabotage. From beneath the cloth, Brock produced a hammer and placed it in front of Thor. Thor looked at it and sniffed. The handle is rather short, he said brock nodded yes he said that's my fault i was working the bellows but before you dismiss it let me tell you about what makes this hammer unique it's called mjolnir the lightning maker first of all it's unbreakable doesn't matter how hard you hit something with it the hammer will always be undamaged thor looked interested he had already broken a great many weapons over the years normally by hitting things with them if you throw the hammer it will never miss what you throw it at Thor looked even more interested. He had lost a number of otherwise excellent weapons by throwing them at things that irritated him and missing, and he had watched too many weapons he had thrown disappear into the distance, never to be seen again. No matter how hard or how far you throw it, it will always return to your hand. Thor was now actually smiling, and the thunder god did not often smile. You can change the size of the hammer. It will grow and it will also shrink down so small that if you wish, you can hide it inside your shirt. Thor clapped his hands together in delight and thunder echoed across Asgard. And yet, as you have observed, concluded Brock sadly, the hammer of the handle is indeed too short. This is my fault. I failed to keep the bellows blowing while my brother, Etri, was forging it. The shortness of the handle is a minor cosmetic problem said Thor. This hammer will protect us from the frost giants. This is the finest gift I have ever seen. That
0: was lovely and funny. Thank you so much. Neil, thanks for being here. The book is Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman, out this week.
1: Thank you so much. Sarah Lyle joins us now. She
0: reviews this week Allie Smith's new novel, Autumn. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You profiled Allie Smith last year when her previous book came out, How to Be Both. Yes. Tell us about that book and, and sort of by lead us into this one.
2: Well, she's a really interesting writer. She writes slightly experimentally. It's not really linear narrative, although you tease out an incredible story when you read her books. How to be both was a book in two parts one that focused on a contemporary young woman in England and another who focused on a renaissance uh, fresco painter in Italy and somehow managed to bring them together and really interestingly the publisher put out two forms of the book one of which started with one of the stories and the other which started the other and the idea was that you could it didn't even matter like the idea was that time sort of was immaterial, that all times were happening at once. It was really, really interesting. Did you read both? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because they become intertwined. And then you start to see the connections between one and another. And part of what Ali Smith does is she writes in a way that makes you feel that all things are connected. Mm -hmm. She writes very much of like the connections between the living and the dead, the past and the present, people who would seem disparate but, but actually have things in common and a lot of her writing is an effort
0: to kind of find connection and that book was shortlisted for the Booker Prize for the Man Booker Prize and she also won a, is it the Goldsmiths award that you get for books that sort of push the boundaries of what a novel is that's right she she won for
2: that one and it's sort of experimental i don't know quite what the language is but um, you know, she no one should be put off by what I'm saying about experimental because it's very very readable. She has such a sort of lovely narrative. Yeah, that's usually voice. a
0: terrifying word. <laughs> exper- phrase. Experimental fiction run.
2: Yeah, yeah, I hate it usually, but it's so she's so easy to read and she has such humanity. I mean, I think Dwight Garner, our colleague, put it in his review of um this current
0: book that she has a beautiful
2: mind, and mm-hmm. she really does.
0: So this is her 7th book and it's the first in a planned quartet beginning with autumn around the seasons does it stand alone oh yeah yeah um it's interesting that she started
2: with autumn because autumn is such a season of change and that's one of the themes of the book uh, the idea is that winter is coming next and then spring and then i guess she ends with summer and it's set in a very specific time and place she wrote it right off the news so it said in post-brexit britain at a time, just like in the United States, of real turmoil in the country and a lot of discord and a lot of bubbling up of hatred and antagonism. And the idea is that all these troubling things are happening in the background, yet it still is a novel about people trying to connect to each other.
0: You know, the timing there sort of boggled my mind because it is February and Brexit just happened. How did she do this, you wonder? I mean, she must have written this... Really quickly. Yeah, Really I quickly. Know. I mean, I think it really
2: held up. I think uh, there are a few bits of it that seemed slightly... that They weren't integrated quite as well into the novel as the rest of it, but I think it was a really amazing achievement. It's really hard to write a kind of state-of-the-nation book like right when it's happening. Yeah. But I think, you know, what we're seeing so much in novels these days is a lot of dystopian novels set in the future where, you know, the the global warming has like ruined the world and there's no economy and everyone's like scrabbling in the dust. And we've read so many of these, but what's really happening is people are scared of the present. Mm -hmm. And what she's done is really picked up that kind of anxiety that people have. And she just talk, you know, she has this whole thing. It's her characters in the book read a lot. And so there's a lot of allusions to literature in a really kind of nice way. And there's a whole bit about Dickens where she writes a passage that basically says, half the country was celebrating, half the country was mourning. A tale of two cities. Yeah, yeah. It was a time of, you know, uh, horror. It was a time of joy. And she sets up this, you know, really neat dichotomy, just like we have in the United States, of half of the country's happy and half the country's sad. And so I think it picked up a lot of what we're going through, and it worked really well. Is this the first post-Brexit novel? I think that's what they're kind of billing it as. I'm not sure You know, who knows? But it Mm -hmm. it certainly feels that way. It really, really
0: feels very contemporary and and not too hasty, in my opinion. Somewhere, some other writer is seething and saying, No, 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 I (laughs) wrote the first post Brexit novel and it came out two months ago. Exactly. Um, Is it a political book?
2: Not really. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a book sort of about humanity. I mean, what's so cool about it is the main characters are this young woman who's I think 32 when the book begins and this man who's 101 years old and he's dying in an old age home and you have the kind of what's happening in the present and then you have a series of flashbacks that go through the history of their relationship which began when she was little and her family, she and her mother moved into the house next to his, and he was, I guess, in his 70s then. And he became kind of a babysitter and a friend, and the mother was always suspicious and said, you shouldn't hang around that old man, but she developed this incredible friendship with him. And he, the, the passages were the two of them together, are the most wonderful passages in the book, because they're so great. He sort of teaches her about keeping an open mind and reading and telling a story and being generous and having humanity and everything that they do together is a sort of word game and playful understanding of nature and the world. And every time he sees her throughout the book, and they don't see each other that often in their lives, the first thing he says is, "Is what, what are you reading? What are mm-hmm. you reading? And it's really lovely. And there's a moment in the book where she's in her like teens or in her 20s, and she has this lover, and the lover says, you keep murmuring this man's name at night. What's the story? And she says, well, it's my you know, neighbor who, I love. And the the lover says, well, you know, is dirty old man. And she says, no, it's not like that at all. It's platonic, but we just love each other. You just meet people like that sometimes and you love them. And it's really, really nice. And there's a moment when they first meet each other where um, it's, I can't even describe how great it is, but she was supposed to interview him for school like interview your neighbor mm-hmm. and her mother won't let her interview him because she says i don't want you like bothering that weird man so her mother makes up something and the girl is so embarrassed that when she finally meets the man you know she sort of pretend it, it's really funny but anyway at the end of their beginning conversation which is such a great conversation he says to her it's so lovely to meet you finally and she says what do you mean finally and he says Lifelong friends. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to meet them. Oh, that's it's great!
0: Really lovely. You mentioned earlier that there are um, a number of literary allusions in the book, and and also dystopia. And one of the books that that is alluded to or discussed is Brave New World. How does that come in?
2: That's right. Well, she's there's a scene where she's waiting around to get her passport renewed, and there's all these issues with bureaucracy. So she waits for you know like hours and hours she's picked a number and like the numbers are being called like incredibly slowly and she leaves for five minutes and while she's gone the you know it's increased by 300 numbers and her number's been missed so she has to take a new number and wait some more and she goes to the booth and they're like you know this photo that you took at the Photo booth isn't quite right, your head is too big, and they have this big argument over whether she meets the requirements. And it's all just the irritation of the state and how the state can control you by these ridiculous bureaucratic rules. And that's and and you know, and the idea of just the maddening nature of too much red tape, too much impersonality. And so that's how that comes up. And she's reading Brave New World while she's waiting. She practically reads the whole thing waiting in line for the passport office.
0: So you said earlier it's not really a political novel, but you do characterize it as a book of big ideas. What are some of the ideas that Smith explores in Autumn? The
2: biggest one to me was the notion of people trying to form some connection, even against this backdrop of disconnection. So she describes how in the village that her mother lives in, some people have graffitied the, the house of, of some neighbors. It says, um, go back home. And the idea is that they're immigrants. And, and there's all this, you know, hatred in the village. And by the end of the book, some other people have come and graffitied and painted over the go back home and said, we're home already. And people have left flowers and painted flowers on it. And it's sort of this very gentle way of saying that there is like hope Even amidst all this stuff, there are people kind of speaking against it. I think that's one of the biggest ones. The other one is, I think, the the notion of time. Mm -hmm. I think this notion that there's this sort of big disconnect in the ages between the two protagonists, yet they love each other, and it transcends age and gender and proclivities of all kinds. And that time—she sort of looks at time— like Picasso might look at a landscape or a, a person or an object for, from all sides at once. Mm-hmm. So the notion is all these things are kind of happening at once, which is also very reassuring. It's a very warm and reassuring book, the way when her mind comes out that way.
0: That's very nice to hear about a novel that's being described as the first post-Brexit novel. Very reassuring. Did it leave you looking forward to winter? <laughs> <The> next, <laughs> well, of course,
2: winter's the... always the worst,
0: Right. right. And it made me looking forward to spring. (laughs) (laughs) You're already on summer. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Sarah Lyle is a writer at large for The Times and a frequent reviewer for The Book Review and for The Times. And this week she writes about Ali Smith's new novel, Autumn. Nick Bilton joins us now. He is a special correspondent at Vanity Fair and a longtime, former longtime New York Times writer and columnist. And he reviews for us this week two books, Valley of the Gods by Alexander Wolfe and The Kingdom of Happiness by Amy Groth. Nick, thanks so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: The two books that you review are both looks at Silicon Valley, both businesses and the culture around them. Can you just quickly describe each of the books? Let's start with Alexander Wolfe's Valley of the Gods, A Silicon Valley Story.
3: Well, I think um, what Alexander tried to do with her book was to kind of walk people through what Silicon Valley is like. And she does this through the the eyes of a, a young kid who had dropped out of college. i go and join Peter Thiel's foundation where what... what Peter Thiel does is he gives away $100,000 to 20 students under the age of 20 for them to drop out of school, which is kind of ludicrous within itself. But some of the things that she tries to explore are also pretty ludicrous, which is you know the culture of the valley around Burning Man and you know uh, polygamous relationships and people that are trying to mine asteroids and drill into the earth um, and so on.
0: Let's not be coy here. Alexander Wolfe is the daughter of Tom Wolfe. And even looking at the kind of cover design of this book, it has this kind of Wolfian feel. And as you describe it, it's the sound of some of his earlier nonfiction books is it like his work?
3: Well, so I hear something really interesting. I didn't know when I got the book that it was Tom Wolf's daughter. I just didn't put two and two together. And I was reading the book, and I remember thinking, this is really weird. This book seems like it's trying to be Bonfire of the Vanities for the Valley, and it's not doing a very good job at it. And I was going to put that in the review, and I thought, eh, maybe that's not a really nice thing to say. But then after I filed the review, I don't even know how I came across it. And I was like, oh, wait, that was Tom Wolfe's Torter. <laughs> that's yes, So, yes, there's, there, is, there are a lot of similarities in, in the way that um, – is put together but you know I think that it, it fails on a few levels one of them is the fact that the through line of Valley of the Gods is this, this young kid in his 20s and he doesn't make a very good through line because he kind of falls off a lot of the story he, he mm-hmm. disappears from many chapters so there's a, a number of chapters that um that start with him in the beginning and then go off on a twenty-page tangent, meeting all these other people, and then end with him in a paragraph. and And I think it's it would have been fascinating to read about this kid and really his life and to see the world through his eyes. But but I think it, it failed in that respect.
0: Is it trying to tell a story about the kind of culture of Silicon Valley, or is it a business book? Like, what is she what is she setting out to do?
3: Um, yes, both. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think that she, I think from from what I can tell, was she set out to try to tell the culture of the valley, and I think that because this in, included Peter Thiel and the billionaire uh, who invested in Facebook very early, it has to include some of in the business. I, I think you know there are parts of the story that are really fascinating and really well written there are parts of this book that drone on for long periods of time one of the things i found really frustrating was she she introduces you to every single person she meets along the way and drops every single name and it it is it's so disruptive to the reading experience you know but there are certain parts of it that i thought were really really good you know she goes to this co-living space down in Palo Alto, around the corner from Steve Jobs' house, and, and you kind of get to see what these kids are doing, living together, and, and that's really interesting. Um, and so it, it, it's it's a little bit of one and half a dozen of the other.
0: To go back to the one of the names that she drops, but a big character in the book, Peter Thiel, um, who has yep. been in the news recently because of his early and very enthusiastic support of Donald Trump as a presidential candidate and now as uh, president— is that in there, or does it get political at all, or does she steer clear of that? It
3: doesn't. It, she steers clear of it, and I think that was my biggest frustration with the book: was that it's very clear that she is impressed by Peter Thiel, and um, and that's fine. You know, he's been very successful. But what I found uh, really frustrating, to an angry point, mm-hmm. was that she doesn't tell you these negative things about him. For example, in the beginning, she, you know, says he made billions of dollars of Clarium Capital, which is his hedge fund. And I've reported on Clarium before for both the Times and for, for Vanity Fair. And and it's considered one of the biggest failures for any hedge fund. Um, it was worth $8 billion at one point, and now it's worth $300 million. And a lot of, uh, as The New Yorker did in a profile on, on Peter Thiel, a lot of that was because uh, Thiel made contrarian bets that, that were wrong. And I think that, and The other thing about teal is you know I mean you could literally put Peter teal uh in some offices in the valley, I Osama bin Laden, I think people would rather go after peter teal i mean I think he's he's vilified in the valley for his attitude around trump and and um how he feels about women's rights and so on and and none of that stuff was really addressed in the book, and I think that that was that was a failure of of reporting I think and of of Um, Of really telling the reader who he really was.
0: Those of us who do not live or work in Silicon Valley often approach these stories about that culture, about tech culture, and all of these uh, hugely successful, once were startups, now run the world companies, as in in this kind of like, wow, what a crazy place. They do X, Y, and Z, and the the kids there do, you know, are are this way, and everyone is a multi-gazillionaire. And I'm curious if you find in these kinds of books, if that Outsider perspective, because Alexander Wolf is a New York-based reporter, works well. If it sometimes works well, sometimes doesn't, and how it functions in this book.
3: Well, I think that's it's a great question. I think you know, and this applies to both books that I reviewed and many, many other books about the valley. Is the question is who are they writing for? Right, you know, I I, I think that there's a world in which you can write for the people in the valley, and you know, I did that with my book on Twitter telling the story of how that company was just a complete disaster and a mess, and uh, Kirkpatrick did it with Facebook, Brad Stone did it with Amazon. The, the, that's a certain kind of book that you can do uh, that is for the Valley, and then there's the other kinds that are for the, the lay reader that doesn't understand the culture. And I think I struggled with both of these books to figure out who the audience was. And if you do tell the people outside of the Valley what what it's like there, it's really interesting. It's a bizarre, bizarre world where you have, it's it's a 50 square mile radius that has created more wealth in that 50 square miles than any place on earth in history. More than oil, more than religion, more than stock markets. And I think that that's something really interesting. And I think where a lot of these books end up kind of having a problem is that they they try to talk to all those audiences, and, and that never really works well.
0: You know, I wonder if someone's done a book. I don't think I've seen one on the kind of have-nots of Silicon Valley and the people who were there before this happened, and what's what's happened to them?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's it's fascinating. John Markoff, uh, who just retired from the Times but is still writing for, for the paper. John wrote some of the most incredible cultural stuff about the valley, about, you know, Steve Jobs and people like that taking acid to design the next computer and so on, you know, 30 years ago. And and when you kind of look at that stuff now, it's almost more relevant than the, than the stuff that's coming out today, the books that are coming out today, because that was really the precipice for where we are today. And uh, it, those cultural shifts were the things that created Burning Man and all these other things that are referenced in these in these books.
0: What is the connection between Silicon Valley and Burning Man?
3: There are a number of connections between Silicon Valley and Burning Man. The first, I think, is that, um, so I've been a couple of times, um, so I can speak to it first person. Uh, um, it is a bizarre, amazing crazy place. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's, you know, smack in the middle of the Nevada desert. And it's, um, if, you, if you imagine the white flat sands of the desert uh, with nothing there. And then all of a sudden, uh, there is a city that's five square miles with 40 to 50,000 people living for a week in tents and RVs and techno music and fire breathing into the air and drones and helicopters and skydivers. And it's completely insane and bizarre. And a lot of people from Silicon Valley go there because, A, it's very close, and B, it's a way for them to kind of let loose for a week. And it's a really fascinating culture because it sprung out of San Francisco. The first Burning Man was actually on a beach in the north of San Francisco and then eventually ended up in the desert. And it it brought the culture, a lot of the, the early tech founders that I've spoken to that went there, they've been going there for 10, 15 years, And then over the years, you started to get more celebrity-esque tech folks that went. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has been, Jeff Bezos, the Google founders, Eric Schmidt, pretty much everyone who's been a a VP executive at Facebook or Twitter or companies like that. And what's interesting that that both of these two books that I reviewed, you know, Chronicle, is that the people who had gone there tried to bring those ideals back. And that is never going to happen. It's, you know, it's a week where... You, this, you can't buy or sell anything. Everything's traded. It's almost like this kind of fairyland. And right. and so that's that's where the connection fails.
0: Let's talk about the second book, The Kingdom of Happiness, Inside Tony Shea's Zapponian Utopia by Amy Groth. So this is about Zappos, the online shoe company. The whole idea of Zappos, I think, again, for outsiders, is sort of confounding, um, the idea that there's something truly amazing and this, this unique culture to a company that sells shoes. So maybe let's start there.
3: So I think one of the things that Zappos did that was really, really intelligent, really smart, and Tony Hsieh, uh is behind a lot of this, is they created a culture where people really wanted to work at this institution. I may be messing this up numbers-wise, but I, I remember hearing a story many years ago about how Tony Shea would tell people, would offer people a job, and then he would offer them several thousand dollars not to take the job. And if they could take the money and, and leave. And it was, you know, this idea of being able to say, like, you have free will. You can do what you want, but this place is going to change your life and your career and so on. And and they were great with customers. They would, you know, there was a, an unlimited return policy. I remember you call the, the help desk, and they were incredibly kind, nice, and patient. And, and that's what helped build Zappos in, into what it, what it became, you know, a multi-hundred million dollar business, um, if not more.
0: But Tony Shea has written at least one book himself. What do you learn Correct. from this book that you don't get from his own books?
3: I think what you learn from this book is an outsider's perspective. You know, Tony Hsieh, when he wrote his book, it was, of course, mostly positive, um, a lot of lessons to learn from business and so on. What you do with this book is I think you get this kind of perspective where – you see the outsider ideals. And, and what I think that what I took away that was interesting was not what I think the author was trying to present, which was that it's a very cult-like place. You know, the, the scene in the book where the writer is at a bar and Tony Shea and his entourage of employees, they call them Zapatonians, come in and to drink Kool-Aid, which is the nickname they give to, to uh, Fernet.
0: Literally drinking the Kool-Aid.
3: Literally, literally drinking the Kool Aid. But when you kind of take a step back and you read this, you're like, well, these people sound like they're part of a cult. Are they wearing the same Nikes and black hoodies and black jeans and so on? And and I think that the author, for me at least, it felt like um, she was very interested and enamored with that, at least, especially in the beginning of the book. And uh, and it gives you a perspective, though, that it's kind of a bizarre, bizarre place.
0: So, is she? Is there a sort of journey that she takes? throughout the course of the book where she sort of starts off being enchanted and then sort of finds the, the darker side of people who really believe in shoes.
3: <laughs> the journey I think she takes is, is actually it's less to do with the shoes and more to do with a, a new type of management. That Tony Shay is trying to implement in his company called Holocracy, which is essentially where um, no one has a title and you're kind of almost like a free agent. So you could imagine if at the New York Times, by K said, "That's it, no one's got titles." So you could be a, you could decide you were going to go run the Styles desk for a week, and uh, and Stuart Emmerich could say he was going to go and work on National and write stories about shoes or I don't know whatever it is. And it's an experiment with that, which of course fails dismally and. Uh, And the other thing is Tony Shea's idea to bring the Burning Man concept to Las Vegas and invest $350 million of his own money into creating this ultimate work space in downtown Las Vegas, which also pretty much fails dismally.
0: So what works in this book as a kind of, I'm assuming, little bit of an insider business, not quite expose, but deep dive?
3: I think what works is in both books, actually, and I would say this, is that they chronicle failure pretty well um, um you know there's a scene at the end of this book particularly where the writer goes into tony shay's um trailer he he even though he's worth millions and millions of dollars he lives in a trailer in downtown las vegas and 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 they they spend hours and hours going through her own process and it's a little bizarre and, and, and but at the same time it's also somewhat interesting to see that journey But you see that there's failure all around. And, um, you know, that gets the idea from Silicon Valley to to Las Vegas is that uh, failure can can create great things. And I think you see that in, in both of these, in both these
0: books. You've written a book about Silicon Valley yourself, Hatching Twitter. So you, you've you've been in the shoes, or somewhat similar shoes, both of these authors. As someone who's written this kind of book, was there something that you wish that they had done or something that maybe you saw that they did that you didn't do in your book that you wish you had done?
3: I think that there's a lot of, to go back to this bonfire of the vanities, I have heard in the Valley, over and over from journalists and authors, I want to write The, the Bonfire of the Manny for the Valley. And, mm-hmm. and I think that there is a place for that, and I don't think it has been done yet. But to do that, you have to approach these stories about these companies and these people in a very literary manner and not in a business book kind of manner, because that's not what that is. And I think that I wish both of these books would have been Called to and edited in a way that, that would have gotten that across, because I think there's great content in there somewhere, mm-hmm. but it gets lost and mired in the in all the other things that are that are added to the book. For example, in the Zappos um, book. You know, she pastes entire emails in there and t- as examples of conversations back and forth, and and I think that there's an opportunity there. Um, these books definitely tried to do that, and I think they both kind of fell short a little bit.
0: Before I let you go, one more word about the subject of your own book, Hatching Twitter. That was about the sort of dawn of Twitter, looking at the company where it is now, and sort of where the the role it occupies in our culture and as a business. What are your thoughts on? Twitter circa February 2017.
3: Do we have another half an hour? Um, in,
0: in, in 140 words or less. In I'll give you words, words instead of characters. Okay,
3: sounds good. I mean, very briefly, you know, my book chronicles um, the the drama of Twitter. You know, it was four friends who accidentally started this company and then tried to destroy each other's lives to take control of it. And two of them became billionaires and two of them ended up with almost nothing. One of them actually did end up with nothing. And and so that's what the story is about. What, what I find really fascinating after covering tech companies for so long is that the founding of a tech company, and, and not just a tech company, the founding of a company, is uh, creates the DNA of that company going forward. And Twitter was started on chaos, and still today, it is a company of chaos, both internally and externally. It just cannot be tamed. And and I think that, you know, had I have known writing that book, that Donald Trump would have used it to uh, help himself become president and to kind of push forward. And this is my opinion, of course, but put, to push forward this agenda of, of hate almost in the way he does use Twitter. Um, I think I probably would have addressed some issues differently. Uh, but it's, it's just fascinating to see that this is a company that has been mired in pure chaos from day one and still to this day is. And I don't think that that's going to ever stop.
0: Well, the, the narrative there continues. Nick, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Nick Bilton is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and the author of Hatching Twitter. And this week in the book review, he writes about two books, Alexander Wolfe's Valley of the Gods, A Silicon Valley Story, and Amy Groth's The Kingdom of Happiness Inside Tony Shay's Zaponian Utopia. Alexander Alter joins us now to talk about what's going on in the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So we've got jolly news this morning.
4: Yes, there is some good news. It's from last year, but we can carry it over to this year. The U.S. Census Bureau put out their report that looks at the bookstore industry overall, and sales were actually up in 2016. They rose 2.5 percent over 2015 and the store revenue collectively reached just under $12 billion last year, which is up from $11.68 billion in 2015. And it, it was especially good news because I think a lot of publishers and writers and even some booksellers were really worried about the amount of attention that was going collectively among all of us to the election. They felt like people weren't reading as much, everyone was glued to the news and following the cycle, sort of the news cycle, so attentively that, that books weren't getting the attention that they would have in a normal year. Um, so the fact that the bookstore sales weren't hurt by it, I think is great. Of course, the gains are not kind of equally spread amongst all authors. I think a lot of this has to do with a certain book that had Harry Potter in the title, even though Uh, it was a play. (laughs) um, That had a huge boost. And actually, in in kind of the most critical time of year for retail sales for bookstores, which is in December, of course, there was a significant drop. It fell about 3.1% in December compared to the previous year. So they didn't have, you know, the sort of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child craze had kind of tailed
0: off at Even that point. Even Harry Potter couldn't solve it, <laughs> <He> couldn't <laughs> fix it magically. <laughs>
4: Yeah. So but I also think, you know, um, there is a really interesting story by our own Julie Bosman, who the former publishing reporter, she's now a national correspondent for The Times in the Midwest. And she wrote a really interesting piece about how bookstores are getting kind of involved in politics now, um, you know, particularly in the in the protest movement that's kind of being loosely organized now The kind of anti-Trump movement. And of course, it's a lot of the independents, the big chains like Barnes and Noble, you know, they're not participating because you need to sort of appeal to your whole customer base. But a lot of the independents are Organizing and having people write postcards and putting even the books displays kind of have a political bent. So I think they're sort of seeing a role for themselves now in this political climate. As community
0: organizers, exactly for the reading population.
4: Yes, and unrelated to bookstores, there was some interesting book deals announced this week. One was a great surprise to many fans of Philip Pullman. He announced that he will be releasing a new series starting in October, which is related to his Dark Materials series, which was a huge hit. This is the Golden Compass. Exactly. Et cetera. The Golden Compass. Those books have sold more than 17 million copies and have been translated into more than forty languages and of course adapted into films. And I think, you know, they're they're kind of special books because there is this fantasy element But he, of course, comes from this interesting philosophical perspective where he's agnostic or atheist. And and he wanted kids, you know, to have that sort of skepticism and that sort of perspective.
0: These Um, are good crossover books. Exactly. They're they're, very sophisticated.
4: Yes. I think that is a large part of their success. He has a ton of adult fans as well. So this new series, they're being very kind of... um, tight-lipped about the plot, but it's apparently connected to his Dark Materials. It centers on one of his um, most beloved characters, Lyra Bellacroix, and they sort of follow her into a new tale. So that's starting in the fall. And of course, they're expecting a huge uh, amount of sales, and they're printing 500,000 copies. Wow. And that's just in the U.S. And the other uh, book deal, which was also a great surprise, I thought, or unexpected, was Jake Tapper, the CNN anchor, announced a book deal and everyone's immediate thought was, okay, sure. He's been a rising, you know, more than a rising star. He's been the forefront of, of covering this incredible moment in politics. Of course he's gonna write a book about the Trump administration. In fact, he's writing a novel, his debut novel. It's a political thriller titled The Hellfire Club, which takes place in Washington, D.C. in 1954. And it's about this New York congressman who's kind of, you know, new in town and in the Capitol with his with his wife who's a zoologist. And they're sort of making deals and sort of learning how to, how to navigate cutthroat Washington, D.C., political society.
0: I was on a panel last night with Jeffrey Toobin, another CNN figure, and he told a story about how at one point he wanted to write a novel. And so he did. And it was a thriller about a morning news anchor shot on air. Wow. He submitted it to Phyllis Grant, an editor and friend of his. Uh, she was the head of Dutton. And she came back to him and said, This is a this is a terrible book. Um, (laughs) And she said, but I've also shown it to Steve Rubin, who was then the head of Doubleday, now um, the head of Holt. And he also thought it was an awful book. She said, but I liked it more than he did.
4: Oh, that's rough.
0: Yes. So he did not publish that novel.
4: Well maybe now's his
0: moment. Maybe. Alexander, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Pearl Segal is back from maternity leave, and she joins us along with John Williams to talk about what we are reading. Hi, guys. Hey, Boring
5: old John Williams. Hey, <laughs> Pearl. Welcome What's back. What's left of me is right. back.
0: And... <laughs> John Williams,
5: <laughs>
6: again.
0: <laughs> all right, let's start with Paul. What have you been reading while tending to a small child?
6: Well, I was very arrogant, and I was like, okay, I'm going to have a baby, but it's going to be very cozy, and I'm going to read all these 19th century novels. <laughs> and, and how foolish that was. You don't have hands is the thing, I realize, when you have a baby. So for the first time in my life, I write on my phone, I'm. What did I read? I read Twitter. I listened to podcasts, and finally, podcasts. I listened to podcasts. I did. I did. Um, rival podcasts even. Oh. And, uh, but when she got out of that like immediate like feral zone when things were three months, and she started to calm down, and I started to sort of. You know, turn to books again. I started to like read uh, children's books, and I never read children's books when I was little, mainly not because I was precocious, but because I wanted to read what my mother was reading, which means that I read so much Jackie Collins (laughs) too early in life. Not at six
5: months, presumably. But you know,
6: you know, like a nice uh, seasoned 18 months, I'm sure, but so much Sidney Sheldon and Jackie Collins. Oh my God. The other side of midnight. The other, all of that. But so it's my first introduction to. You know children's literature, which I'm so impressed by, and you know I'm a big fan of uh, Harold and the Purple Crayon. And uh, my favorite books of all time. But the the book that's sort of dominating our consciousness and bedtime is Goodnight Moon, which I never read, and it is the strangest, most surreal book. So that's what I'm reading every night between six forty five and seven, chased sometimes with a little pick me up Mama. And uh, <laughs> do you follow the little mouse's trail through the illustrations? Have you done that yet? We've done that. I mean, yeah. It's it's just like I think my husband and I have a constant conversations. like, why does he have to be a young mouse? Like, the, the, there are only 30 words, but everything is so precise, and we're always like trying to figure out the perspective, who is telling the story, why is it so strangely comforting. Um, One of the most distinctive things about Goodnight Moon, and I haven't figured
0: out how it does this is that certain picture books when you read them over and over, you die a little bit yeah. each time you reread it because yeah. your brain is just being crushed by boredom. And weirdly there's something hypnotic there's something about Goodnight Moon that keeps you going with each reading, hmm. even if it's the five thousand seven hundred and forty second time you're because reading. Because it, it
6: makes no sense. This is the thing. It's kind of like a surreal masterpiece. Like what is with the I'm sorry, I can talk about this endlessly. The kittens, the mittens, the mush, like they don't connect in any interesting, meaningful way. So you're kind of just. um It's very Zen. Is it Zen? Well,
5: you're just sort of like noticing what's in front
6: of you. Well, you know, she's an interesting
0: author, Margaret uh, Weiss Brown, because Runaway Bunny is kind of diabolical. Yeah. Um, and then that's other a books, very distressing book. It's a deeply. Yeah. Are, you, are you going to read it or I've not? I've tried.
6: I've tried. And it's also very self-referential. Have you seen the pictures in Runaway Bunny appear in Goodnight Moon, but then pictures of Goodnight Moon appear in Runaway Bunny? Yes. Which yes. one came first? It's all a marketing plan. <laughs> um, Clement Hurd, that genius. That's
0: right. But she <laughs> yeah. also
6: wrote some pretty awful books. Which ones? Like, not Little Fur Family.
0: Little Fur Family. Do you like Little Fur Family? Uh,
6: No, Little Fur Family is not one of my favorites. I do like Warmest Toast. Little
0: Fur Family is a very like talk about a deeply weird and upsetting title. Yeah, just the title alone. Little Fur Family. Yeah, not even animals. You're just you're just
6: hairy. Yes.
0: (laughs) All right. John, also in picture books?
5: Well, hysterically, I'm, going <laughs> the exact, I'm reading a couple of books. You're that are just the
6: exact same thing. So you're inappropriate. A defense of man. little for a family. Uh,
5: yeah, I'm reading books that you maybe should start reading when you're 28, if then. <laughs> I read uh, Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, which is from 2004, and I'm going to be writing something about it in the coming days for the paper. And it's the novel that is a counterfactual history that imagines Charles Lindbergh being elected president in 1940. And... Unseating FDR and sympathizing with the Nazis and bring, and keeping the U.S. out of World War II, and it tells the story of that history through the story of Roth's family, sort of you know lightly veiled autobiography of him uh, and his family in Newark, and the divisions among the family politically as as this happens. And I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would because I'm not a fan usually of things that kind of um, hang on a gimmick, but it really does feel like a Philip Roth novel. You know, eighty-five percent of the time, it's not like a sci-fi book or something. Yeah. And and the stuff about New Jersey and the family is really great and well observed. And then the counterfactual things are, they're kind of the base note throughout. They don't dominate, and they're mostly convincing. And they obviously have some interesting both parallels and diversions to uh, the the fractures in the country at the current moment. And um, but I won't give away more than that for now. Uh, and then when I finished that, I I went on a Philip Roth kick a few years ago and read maybe six or seven of his books, and I feel another one may be coming on. So I started Sabbath's Theater, which is from 1995, I think, and a book that a couple of my friends really love, and that I've been meaning to read for a long time. And I'm about a hundred pages in. It's great. I'd say that it's the writing is more energetic and even better than The Plot Against America, and it's very deeply about sex and mortality... Shocking. And, uh,
6: Shocking. <laughs> yeah. And
5: saying goodnight to mittens. <laughs> uh, those are the three things that's, that's about. Pamela, what about you? What are you reading these days?
0: Well, you know, once again, I fell off the self-help how-to wagon. I did finish the Eleanor Roosevelt, You Learn by Living, which I highly recommend. Mm. It's incredibly wise and she has this chapter on maturity that I just, I want everyone I know to read. It's by Eleanor Roosevelt. Yes, she wrote How? it in 1960, two years before her death. And It really reads like the book of an older person, Mm -hmm. um, someone who has, in fact, accrued much wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so much of what she writes at that moment, which is sort of the dawn of the 1960s, and um, she's dealing with issues of poverty and race Mm -hmm. and human rights and post-war kind of crisis, and, and it's the dawn of the 1960s. So much of it can still work today. Yeah. So it's I, I highly recommend that book. Mm-hmm. But I then weirdly picked up a book that I long resisted. I long resisted Bill Bryson as an author because he was just too popular. <laughs> I just thought like if everyone else likes him, then surely I won't. And he came on the podcast maybe a year or two. Did ago. Did you open with that? I did. <laughs> did I said, "You just I can't like you." I'm too determined many other to not people like people do. He came on, and of course he was delightful and charming. And I subsequently read um, a short history of nearly everything, and loved it. And I then picked up a Walk in the Woods, which was just sitting on my shelf. Rediscovering America on the Appalachian Trail again, feeling resentful, feeling like I, everyone else read this. I, you know, it, it sort of felt like. Wild did back yeah. when Cheryl Strayed's mm-hmm. Wild, which I also resisted mm-hmm. because too many people were reading it. Uh, and I did read it and also really enjoyed it. And it had, there are a lot of parallels, obviously, between the two books. But he's just incredibly funny. Yeah. There's a little section at the beginning. Um, he buys a book called Bear Attacks, Their Causes and Avoidance. And then he reads it and he... Uh, writes about his response to this particular work and it's so funny I I read it aloud to my 10 year old and he was shrieking with laughter
5: <laughs> does he do it for i mean you brought up wild i mean does he do this just sort of for the fun of it
0: yeah like, he yeah. does it for the fun yeah. of it he's got no good reason and
6: i do like the subtitle though bear attacks causes like the causes <laughs> is, is one would there. think self-evident you yes. know? <laughs> a bear attacks a human for the
5: reason that a mountain climber climbs a mountain
0: yes he starts off the section by saying black bears rarely attack but here's the thing sometimes they do.
6: <laughs> Fair enough. So this is I'm why really... I'm not an outdoors type.
0: <laughs> this, is my, this is my paperback uh, train reading. And then at home, I started a book that came out last year by Jennifer Haig called Heat and Light, mm-hmm. which is about mm-hmm. fracking. Uh, that's also quite good, but that's my, that's my bedtime reading because it's a hardcover. That's a novel. And very briefly, looking at the bestseller list to see what other people are reading, what too many other people like. (laughs) Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman, no surprise, debuts at number one. He was our guest on the podcast this week. That's nice to see. And on the nonfiction list, Hillbilly Elegy remains at the top, J.D. Vance's memoir. uh, That's one of the books that I think has really benefited Mm -hmm. from the Trump election. And that's now 29 weeks on the list.
5: I've been meaning to read that. It's time to finally get a copy.
0: You're going to read that one to your baby, Paul?
6: I mean, after some Sidney Sheldon. I think that that's uh, inevitably where we will go. <laughs> All right, Paul, John, thanks so thanks much. Pamela. Good night, room. bye Remember, there's more at
0: nytimes.com books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.